Good morning. My name is Brandon Barnes. I'm one of the elders here at Groton Bible Chapel. It is a privilege to be with you. Uh, we are in week four of our study in Ephesians. The, the idea behind this is that we look at the book of Ephesians to kind of help us understand what it means for us to come together. What does it mean for us to grow closer? What does it mean for us to use this word covenant? What does it mean to be committed, sacrificially committed to one another? We've done this in a few ways. We're using these, uh, these metaphors to help us. Uh, week one, we looked at the metaphor of body, God's plan to unite a body of people together through the resurrection, death resurrection of Jesus. In doing this, we then talked about that, that creates this temple, a new kind of temple uh, that would extend not just to Israel, but to all people, all nations. And then that allows us to become reconciled, so we're united, we're reconciled. And then, and then Gary last week talked about this idea of mystery, mystery revealed in Jesus, mystery meaning something that wasn't previously known but now understood through the full context of Jesus Christ's life. And so Paul is teaching this to the church and that it's to be proclaimed. And then this morning we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is this idea of in order for the church to unite and reconcile and proclaim, it has to practice it and it has to preserve it within community. And so Paul's going to use this term that we are to mature into a new man. Some translations say perfect man. And it's less a, a gender-specific term and a little bit more around the sense of transitioning from childhood to adulthood, okay? The church needs to know its giftings and develop those through the Word of God and then practice them together. Maturity, if you, if you try to think of the definition, the maturity is kind of this idea of growing from one state or capacity of understanding to a greater state, to become fully developed. And this happens in all kinds of different ways in our lives. It happens through education. It happens through uh, just aging process. It happens through job experiences. But I, I think if you were to look at all of those, the common arc you would find in maturity is this idea that we are transitioning from, we start with a place of discovery. We discover something new. Then we understand that process that, and then we apply it to our lives. And so I was thinking about two key experiences in my life, two, two that were sort of seminal in this process. One happened when I was 17 years old. 17 years old, I was, I was a child of the 80s when, when car stereos were big and loud, and we were, uh, I grew up in Arizona. We were down at the University of, or, or sorry, Arizona State University, kind of near there, and we're just listening to music, and slowly as we were listening to music, kind of drew this, this crowd of guys. This crowd of guys came, at first they seemed kind of nice. They surrounded our car, and then they attacked us. And we were jumped, and they wanted our money and some other things, and um, one of my friends was, was severely beaten, and, and we had to take him to the hospital. And that was a, a, an impactful moment in my life. When I was 25 years old, I remember my wife and I had been married for four years. I didn't have kids yet. My wife mentioned to me that she was a little late. And I can tell you that we had talked about having kids, but there was something about this I just wasn't expecting. And I was filled with such anxiety, she'll, she'll tell you, she'll confirm this, that for like two days I hardly said a word. Like I was just filled with uncertainty about how I would provide. I felt totally incompetent. It was a false alarm, by the way. But we did have kids three or four months later, which is kind of funny. The point... The point being, both of those situations moved me from one place. It was a discovery that moved me from one place to another. It moved me from one place of security and knowledge of how the world worked to a whole different place. 
They challenged me in new ways of looking at myself and my situation. That's what I discovered. And then I had to work through complex feelings, doubts, and fears to kind of understand what was going on. And then I had to figure out how to apply that in, in, in becoming a little wiser in the process. But you know what? Maturity certainly happens through experience. But one of the things that really helped me in maturing was I didn't do it alone. What contributed to my maturing through, maturing through this was other people close to me. My dad was the one that went with me to the, to the police station to, where I had to actually identify a couple of these guys. It was the stability of my family and friends and church that reminded me that I can be a father. You can do this. It was people that came alongside of me that kind of helped me take my experience and put it against the backdrop of bigger, wider experiences that then helped me gain perspective and helped me grow. Paul, to the church of Ephesus, reminds the church that they're to mature together through their discovery, their understanding, and their application of Jesus Christ in their lives. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth. God, I just ask that you would help me to steward your word well. Uh, Lord, that uh, we would grow together through this, that we would understand what community looks like as you intended it in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's take a look. We're going to look at uh, the chat. We're going to look at chapter four. We're going to be bouncing around through quite a bit of this. If you have a phone or a Bible, I encourage you to use it to follow along. It'll be a little easier, but certainly we'll have it up on the screen. Here we go. Chapter four, verse one. I, uh, this is Paul talking to the church in Ephesus. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter, and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul, right out the gate, that reminds the church that in order for them to grow together, in order to mature, they can't forget what they discovered together. What did they discover, you ask? If you go back just to the previous chapter, Gary talked about this last week, and you look at verse uh, if you look at verse 18, he says this. He says that you may have the power together with all the saints, listen, to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. Paul says right out the gate that they have to remember what they've discovered in Christ. Paul's saying, you discovered this bottomless source of love. If we don't start from that point, this community is not going to work. You've discovered this bottomless source of love that will outmatch and outpace your ability to sin. In God, you are given the Savior you need to save you from the sin that you're not going to be able to stop doing. Therefore, this discovery is going to be the thing that will be the catalyst to help you to be humble and gentle and patient people. Deep community. But why, why does community matter? Why are we talking so much about community lately? Why are we asking you to think about this? Why are we putting out these covenant documents? Well, political scientist Robert Putnam wrote a book in 2000 titled Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of the American Community. And Putnam demonstrated in this book that using survey data that there was a decline in mass memberships for things that fostered community, things that fostered volunteerism, relationship building, like the Boy Scouts, like Red Cross, like Rotary Clubs. And he noted that while bowling as an activity was kind of actually on the upswing, bowling leagues at the same time were going down. And bowling leagues back in the day, you would go down to your bowling alley and you'd sign up for one, you'd get placed on a team. And he said what's changed in, in bowling is it became more of a, and actually more of a sport where people were training on their own or just going with people that they knew. 
And he said that organizations that were actually now on the rise were kind of like those individual bowlers. The Sierra Club's a good example, where the only active membership consisted of newsletters and donations. He said those kinds of groups were going up. But he said what's lost in that is social capital and trust in each other erodes. And he says it erodes, basically you need three things to make a society successful and hold together. The first one is social capital. We need to be together with people that aren't like us. We need to be challenged by other people with other views. So social capital is how you network outside of just your family and circle of friends. And then he says you need strong institutions. You need to be able to trust schools and governments and churches. And he said, those things are trusted through shared stories, the third part of a, of a society that holds together. Trusted belief systems. Those things have all been whittled away at incredibly through things like social media. Half-truths and spurious facts break our societal bonds. We become increasingly separated. We become autonomous. We become non-relational. We, become, we feel powerless, we feel we can't trust anything, and ultimately we feel alone, such that in 2018, England actually set up their first minister of loneliness. Maturity through discovery, Paul says, cannot happen alone. Paul says, you live out the faith you've received by bearing with one another. He uses this word, bear with one another. Now, you don't bear with someone that you love to be around, right? When he uses the word bear, he's saying, these are people that like, you may have to get to know a little bit. That's not going to be easy. You bear with them as you get to know them. So he's challenging people, he's challenging us to bear with one another. But then he goes on and he says you have to grow. You discover the depths of love that Christ has. And then the next thing you discover is the gifts amongst you. The gifts amongst you. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. He says, but to each one of us, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called one. Um, uh, I'm in the wrong section here, sorry. Uh, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. And then Ephesians 4.11, sorry, that was 4.7, 4.11, he says, it was he who gave some to be the apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Look at this. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. As we stated in the outset of this study, the whole reason the elders have been working on this, the whole reason we're trying to teach this idea of covenant partnership and community is because we want to grow closer to you. We want to know your gifts. We want to know how God has graced you. We don't believe that just Gary and Zach are the only ones that should know God's word and spend, up here, spend their time up here teaching us. We believe that this church exists best in plurality where we're all studying God's word in small groups and women's studies, men's studies, children's ministries. That's where we grow. That's where we learn each other's gifts. There's two points of application to us this morning on this. The first one is, how have I allowed my community to become really thin? And by the way, you can have thin community in church too. If this is the only time you're coming, if this is the only place you attend for one hour a week, that's a thin community. My challenge to you is look around, find somebody that doesn't look like you or maybe somebody that uh, is a different age from you or maybe somebody that's in a different socioeconomic status than you and invite them out and get to know them. This is your community. Point two, do I know my gifts? 
Am I using my gifts? Am I exploring my gifts within the context of a loving community that can say, hey, you know what? I've seen you. You're really good at this. You should do this. And then you run with that. And are you doing that to other people? We look for gifts in each other. It's important that we apply both of those things. But that helps us with discovery. That's one part of maturity. But we have to mature together by understanding what God is doing. So look at Ephesians 4, 14 through 15. We have to understand how the world works. Paul says we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in this deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, look at this, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Paul says the key to our maturity is understanding what we're up against. One pastor I heard use this analogy, I'm going to rob it. He said he saw maturity in his kids through the game of checkers. What happened with checkers when you have, a, I remember this myself, when you have little kids, you play checkers, and it's pretty easy to hop them multiple times and take their checkers, and they're like, whoa, what just happened, right? <laughs> and they're kind of wowed by your checker prowess. And then after a little while, they start to see how the game's played, Right? They start to see what's happening. They start to anticipate your moves, and they start to see the strategy of the game. And next thing you know, for me, it was like all of six months later, the kids are beating me, all right? <laughs> Maturity is figuring out the game through understanding. Paul says we have to move from infancy to a place where we can see craftiness and scheming for what it is, and we have to root it out by growing in our knowledge and love of Christ. How does this work? Look at uh, uh, 4.18. And jump down to 18, he says, uh, he's talking about the Gentiles, not to live as the Gentiles do, the Gentiles meaning kind of a word that he's using for people outside the community of Christ, non-believers. He says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. He's saying we're to watch the way the world is moving, watch how the world is playing the game, and then watch how we respond to that. We have to be guided in our moves through a way of looking at the world that is through Christ Jesus. What attacks our maturity? If I were to boil it down to one thing, it's this word, distrust. Distrust. The, and, and I can back that up. Genesis chapter 3, if you go back and you look at the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, you see that Adam and Eve didn't sin out of a malicious intent or a hate for God. They were swayed and enticed by something held in front of them that in essence was short-term gratification. Successfully, Satan did successfully three moves. If we're talking, keeping the checkerboard theme, he did three moves. The first move that he did was he placed God's goodness in question by, by saying this. He took something that was very clear, God's word, God had told them, do not do this. One command, don't do it. He took something that was very clear and he confused it. He said, he said this, did God really say? Did God really say? Apply that into anything you're contemplating right now and ask yourself, is it clear in God's word or are you playing the did God really say game? And then he goes on, the next thing he does, the next move, he rationalizes that distrusting God won't be that bad for them. You won't surely die. Sin isn't that bad. This thing isn't that bad for you. It's the next thing he does. Then the third thing he did is he placed man on the throne and pushes God to the side. You will know good and evil, as if we can know better than God. Three moves, 
game over. We're downstream of these events now. The current has picked up pace, and things have gotten pretty bad, right? And it all stems from distrust of God's goodness. Those same tactics, by the way, those same three were used on Christ. How did Christ defend them? This, right? For each attack from Satan to him, he countered with God's word. Part of the reason, Bible's our middle name at GBC. Paul says, the malignancy of sin is that it masks itself as this form of enlightenment, that we can know better than God, that we can know better than our creator what is good for us. But do we? Do we really know better than God? The American Psychology Association uh, published an article titled, Flawed Self-Evaluation, Implications for Our Health, Education, and the Workplaces. The study said, people's self-views, it's a thorough study, people's self-views hold only a tenuous to modest relationship with their actual behavior and performance. The correlation between self-ratings of skill and actual performance, what you actually do, in many domains is moderate to meager. Indeed, at times, listen to this, other people's predictions of your outcomes prove more accurate than that person's self-predictions. People overrate themselves. We do this all the time. Health, education, and work, it says. Health, yeah, I'm pretty fit. I was at the gym like two months ago, right? Or... You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty smart. I went to college. I kinda, we overestimate our intelligence. We overestimate when we're going to deliver a project. Y'all have that done next week. Three months later, you get it done, right? We do that. That's what we do. So when we have this axiom in our culture of, I just need to be the most authentic version of myself or to myself be true, it's kind of hard to do that when our self-assessment starts out from a lie. What's fascinating is the truth that understanding who we are occurs in community, not alone. Happens in community. Paul says in community together, we will keep from being tossed about, blown around by teaching and more, that more than likely affirms our biases. Confirmation bias is a very real thing, right? What is confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is this tendency we have as humans to only search out things that like uphold our opinions. And the internet is like a supercharger for that, right? Like if I want to believe something, I can find 10 things that reinforce what I believe. But in, in tr Paul says we're going to use truth and love, and we're going to confront lovingly, and we're going to remind each other the truth of the gospel and the word of God, and we're going to remind each other who we are in Christ, and then we're going to confront. And this can't, this is the community to be told that you're wrong. This is the community that... Uh, to be loved in as you licked your wounds, because you will. But growth can't happen, maturity can't happen if we live in the idea that no one could possibly speak truth into my life. This is where that happens. It's important that we understand. Paul moves on. So what is the strategy we're to adopt? One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, he says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God. He takes us back to our original design, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So maturing occurs in a community where we understand and reason from the starting point that we are made in the image of God. And let me tell you, this is a very different narrative to what the world wants us to understand. 
For a Christian to be made in the image of God means that we view ourselves as flawed masterpieces. We're flawed masterpieces. That's a very different, that, and we're intended to reflect God's glory. That's very different from the world telling you, you know what, you're good just the way you are. In fact, if you're not pursuing your deepest desire, then you are not being true to yourself, right? That's what we hear. The challenge is if most people don't know who they are at their core, they're deeply confused about who they are, they're going to create all kinds of different identities, and they're going to find themselves frustrated. In Christ, you are told you are a flawed masterpiece, that when you take on Christ in your life, that sanctification process starts, and you start to become more and more like him in the way that he wants you to be. And that gives you security, and that anchors you. He wants to remake you. He's not telling you to come up with some new identity for yourself. Are the communities you're spending time with communities that challenge your biases? Maturing consists of being corrected. Do you have at least one or two people in your life that can help you see blind spots? Paul says we grow in truth and love. Self-delusion is powerful, church. Find someone that can show you where you're deluded and can see the checkerboard again. The truth is clear. We have the truth. We mature through discovery of who we are in Christ, and we just, then we mature through understanding the game and how it's played. And then our third point, Paul says, is we mature through application and practice of learning in our lives. Look at, uh, we're going to breeze through these pretty quick. Uh, verses 25, 29, and 31, Paul says, each of you must put, up, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Then he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, only, for, only what's helpful for building up. And then he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. A mature church understands clearly how to act. If we're putting on the new self, if we're becoming this new man, as Paul talks about, if we're maturing, if we're to be created like Christ in righteousness, then we have to be sensitive to those things that will tear us apart. Things like being dishonest, being dishonest with ourselves or exaggerating to make ourselves look better, confronting ourselves when we have short tempers or we're angry, allowing other people to speak into that in your lives. It means not allowing bitterness to grow. Bitterness is probably one of the things in my experience here as an elder that I've seen just, just tear the church apart. People don't confront well. They bottle things up because they think that's the right way to do it and then they explode, and then they walk away from the church. We confront well. We keep short accounts with each other. As followers of Jesus, we work towards the better of the other before ourselves. But the verse that really gets you, and the way that Paul closes this whole chapter out, is look at verse 32. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Forgiveness, then, is this kind of bonding agent. In terms of a, 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 a metric for how we're maturing and growing is how quickly we can forgive. It's a kind of bonding agent when these anti-unity things occur in our lives and incur in the body of Christ, we have this idea of forgiveness. David Zoll wrote a wonderful book a couple of years ago called Seculosity, and, and um, basically what he does is he says our culture's need for thick communities, deep communities, he said they haven't gone away. He said, you know, previously we would get those 
from religion. We would get things like hope, purpose, and connection from more traditional venues of, of church or religion. He said those needs, those three needs have not gone away. They just shifted. As long as human beings are around, he says, we will need those things. They've just now shifted to the gym. They've, sh they've shifted to the computer screen. They've shifted to workplaces. They've shifted to local bars, microbreweries, gaming tables, romance and dating platforms, parenting and kid activity groups. But he says there's trouble with those. He said for two reasons. Those communities can't, um, can't love as deeply as the church in two ways. One, because those communities tend to distract us from the real questions our hearts long for. Where did I come from, right? Why do I sense such purpose? Why do I need purpose in my life? Why do I feel void when I don't have that? Why do I sense injustice in the world? What happens when I die? Those are big questions. How are those being addressed outside of a church that has the word of truth? But then back to our, more to our point, he says these communities can't heal as deeply because the foundation of what matters for any thriving culture has to be its ability to give mercy and to give forgiveness. How do you teach that? Comedian Jim Gaffigan, one of my favorites, he famously lived with his wife and five kids in their Manhattan two-bedroom apartment, which is where most of his comedy came from. Um, he's the guy that said, you know, want to know what it's like to have five kids? Uh, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> he's got five kids, and he said this. He was interviewed in an interview, and, it sa and they said uh, he's a devout Catholic, and he was asked, how can you remain in the Catholic Church with all the scandals and abuse? And he said this. He said, I need to have this knowledge that I can be forgiven. I deal with a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. He's like, there's times when I doubt it all, and there's times I say, thank God it's there. Every generation thinks they have it figured out. I want to be in touch not only with forgiveness, but with the idea that I don't have it all figured out. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, if you've ever been wronged, you know how hard that is. You know how hard it is to forgive someone. It's a little different than when your kid does something wrong to, you know, your brother or sister, and you say, tell him you're sorry. Kid says, sorry, and the dad says, no, tell him you forgive him. So I forgive you, right? It's not that. We know in the church it's much more difficult. As we get older, the things, the abuses to each other are very hard, which is why Paul teaches that we don't, we don't have to forgive outside of the fact um, or on our own or apart, from our, uh, or apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and God in us. God teaches us a supernatural kind of forgiveness. Look at what 1 Corinthians 13, 4. This is the kind of forgiveness we're to give. This is the example Paul gives. He says, love is patient, kind, goes on. And then he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's the kind of forgiveness we're called to. How do we do that? How do we actually keep no records of wrong apart from the work of God in our lives, apart from the example that Jesus Christ gave us? supernatural foundation done in Jesus Christ. Paul concludes the chapter and takes us to the ultimate point of maturity that it's our ability to both receive um, forgiveness but also the commanded forgiveness. So look at these verses just real quick. Received forgiveness, Psalms 103. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is love for us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how he's removed our transgressions. 
Hebrews 10.10, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, all sins, past, present, future. Jeremiah 31.34, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That is how God sees us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, with that church, we're commanded, just as we've been forgiven, to bear with each other and forgive. To forgive as the Lord forgave us. Luke 17, 3 through 4, that if we wrong someone and they ask for our forgiveness, we have to give it. Because we've been forgiven. God's not asking you to do something he didn't do for us first at an extreme cost. He's saying, follow him. My family and I have been a part of this church for 18 years. I've served as an elder for eight years. This place has become our home. And you know, there's been very tough confrontations in my time as an elder. There's been hurtful relationships along the way. Nothing is perfect because we're not perfect people. Nothing has matured me more than spending time with people, though, different from me, serving with people different from me. But you know what? The one thing this church has always, I think, done a pretty good job at is teaching that we don't look at each other to be perfect. We look at Jesus to be perfect. And then we bind ourselves to him. Maybe in your experience, church has been radicalized not around the message of the cross, but instead around harshness, around inflammatory teaching, around political manipulation, around racism, around hypocrisy. To which I'd say this to you, Jesus isn't going to judge you against those people. He's going to judge you what you thought of him. Are you going to stand before the son? Are you going to stand before God on your own righteousness or are you going to stand there in the righteousness of the perfect son Jesus? Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas, said, you know, the, the, uh, the disciples um, could have easily walked away because of hypocrisy, right? One of their very own, Judas, betrayed Jesus. They could have said at that point, you know what? Too much hypocrisy in this group. I'm out. But what did Peter say instead? Peter says, Lord, to who do we turn? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't want Judas. Peter wanted Jesus. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. You've discovered Jesus, how you follow after Jesus, how you understand forgiveness that you've been offered and turn offer that. The application of, it, of forgiveness demonstrates our maturity. It demonstrates our maturity. Let us grow up to full maturity. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus this morning, love and forgiveness is what builds deep, thick communities that the world can only attempt to copy. We have a glimpse of that, that we'll be in all eternity together. Don't be fearful of commitment. See what great length Christ has come to you and his commitment to you. Discovery, understanding, application. This is where we learn. This is where we confront each other well. This is where we take correction based on the truth of God's word. This is where we uncover our gifts and we use those to lead each other towards more Christ-likeness. This is where we understand the way the world is playing the game. We anticipate its moves, and then we intercede with redemption. This is where we forgive when we're wronged. This is where we mature to new men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. Uh, thank you that you don't just tell us to do things and put the burden on us, Lord. You came and did it first. You showed us how to do it, and you compel us 
through your grace and through your mercy and your love to mature and to grow in the way that we show that to other people, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt or shame, but out of joyous return for what you've done for us already. Lord, that is the bonding agent that we want to rally behind in this time and in this season together, Lord. We trust that you're going to take us in new places doing this too, and we're excited about that. We're excited to see what you are preparing us for. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.